For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. So hello, Behind the Knife listeners, and welcome to this special series on pelvic exenteration surgery for locally advanced and recurrent rectal cancer. This four-part series is brought to you by Behind the Knife and the Department of Colorectal Surgery at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, or RPA as we know it locally, here in Sydney, Australia. My name is Killian Brown, and I'm a colorectal surgery fellow at RPA, and joining me today is Dr. Jacob Waller, who is a registrar and advanced trainee in general surgery. It's also my great pleasure to introduce the expert surgeons joining us today. Professor Michael Solomon is a consultant colorectal surgeon and academic head of Department of Colorectal Surgery at RPA here in Sydney. He's Professor of Surgical Research at the University of Sydney, Chairman of RPA Institute of Academic Surgery and head of the Surgical Outcomes Research Centre. In addition to many other accolades, Professor Solomon founded the Pelvic Exenteration Program in the 1990s here at RPA and continues to head the program today, which now has one of the largest experiences with this operation globally. So, Prof, Jake and I are excited to host the series with you, and thanks for being part of it. Thanks for inviting me. So, for each of the four episodes in this series, we've invited a different international expert in exenteration surgery to join us for the discussion, and today I'd like to welcome Dr. Elaine Burns. Dr. Burns is a consultant colorectal surgeon at St. Mark's Hospital in London in the United Kingdom, and one of her major clinical interests is her work within the St. Mark's Complex and Recurrent Cancer Service. She's also an honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College London, and after finishing her training in the UK, Dr. Burns also completed an international fellowship in colorectal and exenteration surgery at RPA in Sydney, where the four of us had the pleasure of working together. And so, Elaine, welcome to the episode and welcome back to RPA. Thank you, Killian. Delighted to be back. So, as I mentioned, this is a four-part series of Behind the Knife, which aims to provide listeners with an overview of pelvic exenteration surgery for rectal cancer. So this is surgery that goes beyond the holy TME plane and involves resection of adjacent pelvic organs, bones and neurovascular structures, and often with complex reconstructions. So in this first episode, we'll talk about the broad principles of this sort of radical surgery. And then in subsequent episodes, we'll go into a bit more detail about the technical aspects of the operation and a little bit about the post-operative management. So without further ado, we'll kick things off with a case. So Jake, a 54-year-old woman presents uh, via her family doctor with rectal bleeding and tenesmus, which has been going on for several months. She's got no other medical history and has no personal or family history of bowel disease. On examination, you find that she has a circumferential bulky tumor starting four centimeters from the anal verge, and it seems to be fixed anteriorly. And clinically, you think she has a 
fistula to the vagina. So how would you further assess and work up this patient, Jake? Thanks, Killian. So as you said, I think it's important to take a thorough history and examination and obviously do a, a very good rectal exam in these patients. And then based on their history and their symptoms, arrange appropriate investigations and organize staging as required. In this patient where there's a, a clinical suspicion of a rectovaginal fistula, obviously at the front of my mind, there's going to be a concern that she's potentially going to require a major resection if she does have resectable disease. So I'd start by investigating her with a, a full set of baseline bloods, including a preoperative CEA, and organize a staging CT, chest, abdomen, and pelvis to look for any other sides, sites of disease. I'd organize a high-resolution pelvic MRI given the proximity to the anal verge. And then I'd organize a, an examination under anesthesia and a complete colonoscopy for her if that lesion is traversable and we can get around. And then the goal of that colonoscopy will to, to do a biopsy to make sure we get a tissue diagnosis to confirm, to confirm our diagnosis. Okay. So... This is her MRI, and for those listening as a podcast, there's an MRI available on the accompanying video. Jake, what do you see here? Okay, so this is a, a T2-weighted MRI of the pelvis. On the axial slide, the first slide we're looking at, there's a large mass involving the, the posterior portion of the pelvis. It's involving the rectum. It looks like it completely obscures the uterus. And it's displacing and pushing the bladder anteriorly. Uh, on the central slice, we can see that there's some bulky appearing mesorectal nodes, which are concerning for local regional disease. And looking at the sagittal slide on the back, it does look like it extends close, quite close posteriorly towards the, the sacrum and the presacral fascia, but it's, it's difficult to tell if there's involvement on this slice. That's correct. So we'll come back to the MRI for comment in a moment from our surgeons. But before we do, Elaine, can you tell us a little bit about how you conceptualize the pelvis anatomically when it comes to these sorts of tumors and, and how do you make sense of all the different structures going on in the pelvis? Thanks, Gillian. I think broadly, I do think of the pelvis when I'm planning these operations or, or more accurately when my radiologist and I are planning these operations into what we have to do in the different compartments, so anterior, posterior and laterally, remembering obviously the different layers that you may need to be in both cranially and caudally. So I think the compartments is important, although is actually what is more important is what has to be done within each structure. These operations are fairly bespoke to each patient, and that's how we plan them. We developed the lexicon in, in the UK really to try and capture some of the nuances of the dissection in each of the different compartments to create a common language that we could use to discuss with ourselves. This is about to go under international ratification, really, to get consensus that it's appropriate internationally. But in the UK, I think we are now rolling this out. And broadly, you think anterior, posterior out into the side walls, what we have to do in each level. So anteriorly, you think you've got the, obviously the uterus, vagina, in a man, you've got seminal vesicles, prostate, bladder, and then going more anteriorly, you have um, pubic bone and even those that require a penectomy. Posteriorly, you can use different approaches depending on the extent of contact of the cortex of the bone and also the height of the tumour whether you just need to take a normal TME brain, presacral, 
or more in-depth in terms of a form of sacrectomy. And in the sidewall as well, you have those nuances depending on the degree of resection that you have. And I think time spent carefully planning these operations in mindful of the different structures in each section is crucially important to achieving an R0 resection. Fantastic. And Prof, do you have anything to add in terms of the compartments or the compartmental approach? No, I think that's really eloquently described by Elaine, and it's really just understanding that it's an extra TME plane uh, that we're not, we haven't really been taught when we were going through training. It's very anatomical, and understanding the anatomy is how you understand the planned surgical approach, really, and that these extra TME planes we're not normally taught, and it's a really an interesting anatomy planning surgery. So coming back to the case, and, and we will come back to the MRI, but Jake, before we do, assuming that this patient has a biopsy confirming adenocarcinoma, what are the treatment options at this stage? Yeah, so with a, a bulky tumour like this, if this patient is fit for a resection, then there should be a discussion around whether or not she would benefit from some neoadjuvant therapy. So talking about this patient in MDT with a discussion about whether they get radiation alone or they get a combined chemotherapy and radiation approach in, in a, a similar style to a total neoadjuvant regimen. And so, Elaine, can you tell us a little bit about the MDT process and structure at St. Mark's, how patients are selected for surgery, and also from a neoadjuvant treatment planning point of view, what this patient might be recommended? Sure. So broadly, we take into account three factors, tumor biology, and typical that sort of extent of disease, but also extent of distant disease, whether they have oligometastatic disease or more extensive disease. Patient fitness is crucial and our patients undergo a high-risk anesthetic assessment and prehabilitation to maximize their fitness preoperatively. And finally, we look at the resectability of the tumor. Now, we all know that most things are resectable, but it's a balance of what we're resecting versus the morbidity that we will cause with that operation. And combining those three factors of the patient together, I think, means that we can have a really quite in-depth discussion with the patient as to what they can expect and what they want to achieve in their life following surgery. In terms of neoadjuvant, in the UK, there's still a slightly mixed market when it comes to neoadjuvant, but overall, many people have moved to a total neoadjuvant strategy. And still for these bulkier tumours, we're still um, focusing on long-course chemoradiotherapy, mostly followed by um, chemotherapy, but there will be nuances depending on EMVI, et cetera, on the scans. But most people have moved towards a total neoadjuvant strategy. Thanks, Elaine. And and Prof, from a patient selection point of view and a resectability standpoint, RPA has pushed the boundaries in many areas in terms of what is and isn't resectable. How are patients selected currently at RPA and, and what are the contraindications to surgery? I think I think Elaine again has explained it very well. I mean, I think the technical, there used to be a lot of technical contraindications, sciatic nerve, iliac vessels bone involvement, which were all almost absolute contraindications in the 1990s, even coming up to 2000 and still are around the world. And I think the technical side's not there. I think we can remove anything really. It's really what 
whether that patient, if they understood what that will affect, how that will affect them, what's the chance we're going to get the R zero resection, and so there's very little. There are certainly things we can worried about, like multifocal recurrent rectal cancer, or nerve infiltration up the sciatic nerve into the sacral foramina and into the spinal cord is usually a bad predictor that you'll get a positive margin, but there's no specific ones. Uh, metastatic disease, again, uh, as long as you feel you can control that. We're seeing a lot of people with lung, slow-growing lung metastases that may go on for five years that responded to chemo that we now may go ahead even though they're still there. I think the whole, the, the whole neoadjuvant setting, the whole therapeutic chemotherapy has changed so dramatically that we've had to move around that. So a lot of it's patient choice. I often say if I see five patients, what I say to the patient actually, if I see five patients with locally recurrent rectal cancer and no metastatic disease or resectable metastatic disease, one out of five after I give them a very honest appraisal of what I'm going, to, what, what we would have to do, will choose that they've had enough and they don't want to go through that. One out of five will look at a technical reason that we really think our probability of getting this all out with a curative thing is low, and then three out of five will probably go ahead. Um, that was probably about 15 years ago when we did a, a study on that prospectively, but there may be four out of five go ahead and on that we've got better data. Fantastic. So just on that topic of of treatment planning and resectability, this patient has neoadjuvant treatment with cons- an inductive chemotherapy followed by long-course radiotherapy, and she has repeat staging. Prof, when you, how do you read pelvic MRIs when, from an exenterative approach? What's your general approach? And with this particular tumour, what do you think the patient needs in terms of extent of resection? I think if you go back to the original MRI first, firstly, I, the way I would look at that is I'd say this is a very mucinous tumour and it's node positive, but there's no, from what I can see, lateral compartment nodes. Mucinous tumours historically don't respond to neoadjuvant treatment as well as others, so that we'd have to bear in mind that. We tend to go with chemotherapy, if we're going total neoadjuvant, we'll go with chemotherapy before radiotherapy particularly if there's any chance of reconstruction or putting the bladder back together again, because if there's a long interval from radiotherapy to surgery, which would be after upfront chemoradiotherapy, then I think the planes are a little bit more difficult in the healing of the bladder if you're doing a partial or an ultra-low, maybe don't do as well. So we would tend to go with chemotherapy and then chemoradiotherapy. Um, when I look at this original MRI, for those that are looking at the Areas that worry me, the presacral fascia in front of S4, there's a loss of the presacral fascia there. If this was a, a recurrence, we would just accept that we have to do the sacrum for a primary, a little bit different because the planes haven't been breached before and there's no anastomosis there. And also the uh, sacrospinous and coccygeus on that left-hand side is a little bit uh, lost, um, but it's not too bad. And then uh, it's certainly filling the pelvis so as Jake had said, an EUA would also give me a bit of an idea about whether that posterior plane on the sacrum was mobile. And that's often in primaries will give you a little bit more advice about that presocal fascia. So they're the areas that I'm thinking here. And obviously the vagina is involved in you. when you do a EUA, you do a you know bimanual PVPR and see where in the vagina it's extending around, how far anteriorly does it go close to the trigone, close to, close to the urethra, 
and what part of the vagina is and what and that guides you as to what reconstruction you may need to do of the vagina. So maybe coming to the post-treatment films now and in terms of planning your surgery and, and developing a surgical roadmap, as we like to say, what, what do you think based on those images, Prof? And, and which also brings us to the the controversy or variation in definitions of actually what is a pelvic exenteration versus a, a more of an extended resection. Yeah, well, I think that reviewing the literature and doing a lot of reviewing, the definitions have become a bit vague and uh, some people are using exenteration to be you know one other organ like the uterus or a partial bladder. But to me, and I think most centers who do exenteration will just call that extended resections, not an exenteration that you need. We, we, by definition, say that you need to do 50% or more or two uh, major organs as a minimum, uh, the lateral compartment involving internal iliacs completely on one side as the minimum, or major vessels and nerves and bone, really, which is our definition. It does mean it's like apples and oranges when you're comparing data if you're just taking an ovary or a little bit of vagina, which is just you know, I think in the remit of most colorectal surgeons to do that rather than exenteration units. So in this case, and I think one of the other contentious issues is do you plan your resection on the original MRI or the downstaged uh, MRI? And uh, I think as a rule, we've always planned it on the original MRI. But there's no doubt when you put them on the operating table and you have a feeling they've shrunk a lot, then you may be more confident, but I think you really do need to. And in recurrent rectal cancer, we plan it on the MRI. We don't plan it on the EUA because it's so hard to tell after radiotherapy, often three or four years. We plan it on exactly where it's involving. So it's a little bit of a different approach for a recurrent rectal cancer where there's surgery and radiotherapy often previously, a long time ago, a couple of years ago to a primary, where we would be happier to go closer to the, the TME planes. Is that a similar approach at St. Mark's Elaine in terms of planning it mainly based on the uh, pre-treatment MRI? Yeah, and then the vast majority of cases we plan it on the pre-treatment MRI. And one of the reasons for that is we're concerned about fragmentation of the tumour. Um, and we actually ask our pathologist to comment on that within the... And we are concerned that that may impact in the primary tumours as well as the recurrence. We, we plan almost exclusively on the pre-treatment um, MRI scan. There may be situations where the patient's got questionable fitness and if they have a really excellent response to treatment, then we may take a calculated risk and downgrade the operation, but that is um, the rarity rather than being the routine cases. So Jake, you take this patient to the operating theatre. Based on the, the MRIs, she's planned for a abdominoperineal resection with a on-block hysterectomy and posterior vaginectomy more as a sort of extended resection probably than a, a total pelvic exenteration. So tell us a little bit about how these patients get uh, set up in the operating theatre. This is normally the registrar's job. <laughs> yeah, this is what I have to do while everyone has their morning coffee. So... As it, for people that are following along, you can see some images from our, our operating theatres at the start of the case. With all our patients, we place them directly onto a gel mat to avoid the patient slipping during intraoperative positioning. We set the patients up in a modified Lloyd Davies position to allow adequate exposure to the pelvis 
for the perineal resection, but also access from the top end to the pelvis from above as well. We tend to roll the edge of the gel mat underneath the the patient's underneath the patient's back to give some support to that lumbar curve, and then that helps to float the sacrum off off the edge of the table for those patients where a, a sacrectomy or a bone resection posteriorly might be required. All our patients also get uh, pulse oximeters placed on their both their lower limbs uh, just to to help the anaesthetists monitor the the lower limb perfusion throughout the case um, with p- the the retraction and the positioning of the patient, sometimes that can become a little bit compromised. So that's a new thing that, that we've started doing at RPA. In terms of after the patient's set up, we obviously just everyone's marked for their stomacytes and the the operative incision and any flaps required for reconstruction are marked out before we, we prepare the patients. We do a final EUA before we start prepping and getting everything sterile just to see if there's any, been any change since the patient was last examined. And then the patient's prepped as one field, including the abdomen and the perineum. In the female patients, we make sure that the vagina is prepped completely as well, especially in this patient who's going to be having a a posterior vaginectomy. That's very important. Normally for the patients that are getting an APR, we'd close off the anus, so suture the anus closed to avoid contamination from bacteria, but also from any tumor from within, within the anus or the rectum. And we also make sure that we prep the catheter so the patient with the IDCs prep the catheter into the field so that that catheter can be manipulated during the procedure to give control over the, over the urethra or if, if it needs to be repositioned during the case. This whole setup process takes, and with the anesthetic time and everything takes us normally, in some cases up to an hour. So during that time, it's a good opportunity for the surgical team to review the imaging, recap what the surgical plan is and make sure everyone's on board for, for the approach to the operation before we get started on, on what's inevitably going to be a long day. Thanks, Jake. That's fantastic. And, you know, even though we we joke about having coffee, uh, certainly something that I've seen at RPA is that this is confirming the appropriate position of the patient and the prep and everything set up is definitely something that's checked by the surgeon in charge um, because it's so critical to get the positioning of the patient correct, both from an anatomical access to the low sacrum, but also in these extended procedures to make sure that, you know, pressure sores and all those sorts of things are, are minimized. So, Prof, do you have anything to comment about that? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your general approach to the operation and and sort of what you tell patients to expect in terms of routine post-operative care and, and the expected trajectory. Yeah, that's exactly what I agree with Jake, how the setup, except I usually do it myself, I must admit, because I do think it's vital. And it really is an important thing because particularly if you're going to be doing you know, a wider APR or you need to take the sacral bone, take out the glute, some of the gluteus. If you're not, if the, if the gluteus muscle in the lower sacrum is not hanging free, you can't do it. It's squat on the operating table. So that's extremely important. And it's interesting that since I've rolled up the mat and supported it in the lumbar, gro- lumbar groove, I've also done it laparoscopically, which I used to be very frustrated after a lap ultra low patients that have back pain as their only pain after the operation. And I'm sure it's because of the paralyzed patient loses their lumbar sacral curvature and gives them pain afterwards. And since I've been doing that, I think I've noticed that to be less. So it's a good little tip. For the patient I meet in the rooms, the first consultation is pretty confronting because I think they're often not in the right ballpark of what they're contemplating. So I often say to them, this is going to be very confronting. I often use the MRI, do a lot of drawings, but really what I say for an exaggeration, that's 
It's a 10-hour operation on average. It's three days in ICU, three weeks in hospital. The last week's more rehabilitation and physio and OT. And it takes three months to get their quality of life back to their baseline. So it's, they're really embarking on a, on a long journey. And I find the threes sort of reminds me to tell them to get them into that right ballpark. Our mortality, I tell them, is about 1%. So it's the same as a gallbladder operation. But the morbidity, everyone has morbidity after this operation. And it's just what morbidity they get. And correcting the morbidity is what perhaps is the expertise for exoneration centers as well. That would be my usual description with a lot of drawings that I often tell them not to make any decisions yet to come back in a week or two, bring their family if they're not with them and uh, have a think about it. Rehabilitation and rehabilitation, extremely important as Elaine was saying as well. So Elaine, we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the principles of the operation. I mean, we can't go through the technical aspects of the whole procedure, but these are the six C's of exenteration surgery that I think were developed by you and your cohort when you were a fellow, and certainly something that Professor Solomon still teaches today. So maybe you could just take us through each of those in terms of the broad principles. Yeah, thank you. And um, this slide basically distills down my entire year's learning in RPA. Um, and I give thanks to my fellow colleagues at the time because we came up a bit together. I think the most important thing preoperatively is to have a clear and coherent plan. And you don't deviate from that plan. So we create a bespoke roadmap for each patient and we follow that roadmap. If our radiologist tells us to take three centimetres of vagina, I get my ruler out and I take three centimetres of the vagina. We plan it at that sort of level of detail. I think that's crucially important, not just for carrying out the procedure, but also for enabling training in the procedure. So you have those standardised steps. Once you actually begin the operation, I think you have to standardise it as much as possible. And part of that goes back to having your coherent plan. Exposure is crucially important, whether you're doing it open, whether you're doing it laparoscopically, robotically. You must be able to see where you are and where you're aiming to get to and have that exposure. And also to know where your key structures are. The most difficult of these operations are where you're trying to preserve structures. So, for example, you know, sometimes taking the seminal vesicles is actually more difficult than doing a total pelvic exaggeration because you're preserving the ureters, you're thinking about their hypogastrics, you're trying to preserve all those structures. And I think clear exposure is absolutely important to that. You also need to know where you are and you're not in TME planes often. And you need to be able to get from one plane to another because anteriorly, you may be in the TME. In the case that we've been discussing, you're not. Anteriorly, you're going to be taking part of the vagina, but then posteriorly and on the sides, you have to come back into the TME. So that constant reassessment allows you to go from one plane to another. You really have to circle your enemy. You need to come at it, know where the most difficult parts are, know where it's most likely to bleed and be able to do those with as much exposure, much clearance around the tumour as possible. For example, the bit that I know that's going to bleed most, if I can leave that to last, then I'll do it last. So then I can take the tumour out quickly if necessary in a quite a controlled manner especially when you're doing vascular dissection. I think it's crucially important to do proximal and distal control. I don't often sleep vessels now, but I think it's really important to be able to access that because 
you will be need to control a bleeder and you need to plan in each case what you're going to do in this case if you get bleed internal iliac vein the artery and be able to have a strategy in each time to be able to control it the last part of the cog in the wheel i'm probably going to leave to professor solomon because he's the expert in that Prof, do you have anything to add? I mean, a lot of those concepts, things that, you know, I've heard from you as well over the years. Do you have anything to add or elaborate on? I think it's always what I've said is I learn more from my fellows than I think I teach them. So when they produced this slide, I, th I thought that's actually a very good slide. So I've been using it ever since. And I, I think constantly we learn more and more from people we work with. And that's why it's great having such talented fellows working with you over many years. Well, I think that that's probably all that we have time for in today's episode. I'd like to thank Professor Solomon and Dr. Burns very much for joining us and for their insight. Today was really about the the broad principles and overview, and in uh, subsequent episodes, we're going to talk a lot more about the technical details in the various compartments, and our next episode will be on anterior compartment tumors. So thanks very much for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.